This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Anthony Burgess was one of the most important and prolific British writers of the 20th century. Most famous for his dystopian vision, A Clockwork Orange, he wrote 33 novels, 25 books of non-fiction, and over 250 musical compositions. This podcast aims to illuminate Burgess's life and work, and his connections to other 20th century literature, film and music. So join us as we explore the world of Anthony Burgess. In this episode, we're talking to one of the 2023 Liana Burgess Fellows, Dr. Arkosh Farkosh, who has spent three weeks researching in the archives at the Burgess Foundation. In its capacity as an educational charity, the Burgess Foundation offers grants to researchers and scholars with an interest in the life and work of Anthony Burgess and other connected subjects such as 20th century literature and musical composition. The Liana Burgess Fellowship helps international researchers to visit the archives at the Burgess Foundation. It's named after Anthony Burgess's wife, who set up the foundation in 2003 and was instrumental in preserving his personal papers and possessions, all of which are available to researchers at our facilities in Manchester. Dr. Arkosh Farkosh is Associate Professor of English at the Otfas Lodand University in Budapest, Hungary. His research interests lie in 20th century English, American and Irish literature. In particular, the Catholic novel, Modernism and the Postmodern, and Utopian and Dystopian literature. As a translator and editor, he helped bring Burgess's Enderby sequence into Hungarian and has translated the works of authors such as Cecilia Ahern, George MacDonald Fraser, Tibor Fischer and George Orwell. He is also the volume editor for the Orwell edition of Anthony Burgess's The Clockwork Testament, available now from Manchester University Press. I'm Graham Foster and I spoke to Arkosh Farkosh at the Burgess Foundation in Manchester in July 2023. I'm delighted to welcome Dr Arkosh Farkosh to the podcast. Arkosh is one of our Liana Burgess Fellows and also the editor of the new Orwell edition of Anthony Burgess's The Clockwork Testament, which is the third Enderby novel. Arkosh, welcome to the podcast. How did you first discover the work of Anthony Burgess and what led you to make it the focus of your research? Uh, thank you very much for the kind introduction, uh, uh, Graham. As for your question, it wasn't through formal education that I was first introduced to his work. The closest uh, I got to anything like Burgess's work during my university years was through Vladimir Nabokov, maybe Orwell. Um, so I was sort of familiar with dystopian writing. But then it was after university when I started my career as a teacher of English as a foreign language that I sort of felt this itch to continue my literary studies on my own, as it were. And I uh, uh, sauntered into one of the major libraries in Budapest, the so-called National Library of Foreign Literature, and I looked at the open stacks beginning with the letter B, and that's uh, where I came across Burgess, and I fell, I fell completely in love, uh, head over heels, if you like, with the Clockwork Orange, which wasn't forbidden fruit in Hungary at the time, but it hadn't yet been translated. So uh, I had the pleasure of reading this strange lingo of Alex and his droogs, uh, a mix, as you know, between Russian and English called Natsat, 
the suffix coming from uh, the Russian language itself, meaning something like teen. Uh, so I loved it, and, uh, and that's how I, uh, I was hooked, uh, as it seems, for life, because that was what... 40 odd years ago. And, and what was that experience like? Because you're a native uh, Hungarian speaker. Yeah. So what was it like reading a novel that was in English, Russian, uh, had elements of Elizabethan uh, yeah. language in it, yeah. had a Cockney rhyming slang in it. What, were, what was that experience like? It was lovely. I mean, uh, uh, it was some help that I'd been, I'd been exposed to Russian. It was a compulsory foreign language when I was a kid. Uh, which doesn't mean that I spoke, or in fact do sp speak now, fluent Russian or even communicative Russian, but it was enough to sort of get the feel of it. Um, and of course the context uh, helped a lot. Also, um, it was the American edition, the Norton edition, with the glossary in the back okay. that I uh, got hold of in this library. Uh, so it was okay. Uh, as for Elizabethan English, uh, Shakespeare was a major subject uh, uh, in my graduate uh, studies, during my graduate stu studies, so um, that helped again. I can't remember having uh, had any uh, serious difficulties or obstacles in the way of of getting the gist of, of, the, of the novel, the feel of it, you know. Quite the contrary, so I enjoyed all this. As for Cockney rhyming slang, uh, in one of our linguistics courses, I think uh, uh, we, we, we had been exposed as students to that sort of thing, even though I, I can't uh, claim to have been intimately familiar with, with it, but uh, I knew enough to uh, uh, to get into it and uh, and enjoy uh, the novel. And and more generally, what what is Burgess's reputation in Hungary currently? Uh, currently, I, it's it's rather hard to say because people seem to be uh, falling out of the habit of read, reading books in general. I don't think it's a Hungarian specifically Hungarian phenomenon. Uh, but um, as far as literature goes, I think he enjoys a high standing, perhaps even higher than in, in England, uh, as, as, as a novelist, uh, even though uh, uh, far from all of his novels have been translated into English, about the, a third of them, 11 to be uh, precise. Um, actually, it all started way back uh, in the 1960s uh, when a learned review uh, appeared in 1966, uh, uh, in one of the uh, scholarly journals in Hungary, philological uh, journal as it was called, uh, uh, about uh, here comes everybody. Uh, it was a very high quality introduction to the book, which has never been translated into Hungarian. So that was the first time the name of Burgess, I think, appeared in Hungarian print or Hungarian print that I'm aware of. Then came the novels which were regarded by the socialist authorities as uh, being highly critical of the corruption of, of the West, uh, uh, one hand clapping specifically. And later, after the major regime change of 1990, 
uh, a whole spate of his novels uh, were made available in Hungarian translation. I had a little part in that uh, as uh, uh, I was an external editor, series editor of uh, Burgess's works uh, for quite some time. For example, oversaw the Hungarian translation of, uh, of the Enderby Quartet. Uh, so, uh, yeah, um, I am very happy to be able to say that not only have the Elizabethan novels been translated into Hungarian, but uh, uh, they've been done by eminent uh, uh, translators, top-notch Hungarian translators and writers. Yeah, I think he's is, is, is highly regarded and respected and, and well-loved by many people. Uh, of course, uh, he's not quite as accessible as, I don't know, uh, uh, the James Bond stories, but uh, he, he has a following, a significant following, and not only among the eggheads like myself. We're celebrating the publication of your new Orwell edition of Anthony Burgess's The Clockwork Testament, the third Enderby book. Can you tell us about the novel and where you think it sits in Burgess's, uh, Burgess's catalogue of writing? I'm a great fan, personally, of all four Enderby novels, which I, regarded, uh, I regard as uh, perhaps uh, the most uh, uh, accessible and at the same time rather challenging and rewarding works by, uh, by Anthony Burgess. I couldn't say that they are exactly uh, my number one favorite, but they rank rather high uh, in my own personal canon, Burgess canon. Uh, within the uh, quartet, I think uh, this is a kind of a key uh, in many ways uh, uh, to the understanding of Burgess as a human being and as a writer. So it is important, even though uh, contemporary reviews were not unanimously uh, positive. There were some rave reviews, but then again, there were some others which uh, found the book either too politically provocative or ill-written even. Some of the reviewers must have got wind of the fact that the book uh, had been written uh, in a very short time, in Bracciano, two weeks or three, which is not quite true, but, but that was how people looked at it, so uh, some of them dismissed it, uh, uh, partly for the perceived, I quote, uh, this comes from Philip Toynbee, raw hatred, which uh, he said was a rotten motive power. Then again, somebody else, uh, uh, I think in uh, the New Statesman, belabored uh, Burgess for having, as, as it's put, translated uh, the easygoing bigotries of his native turf to the, to the tense, angry city of New York. It was a bit of a challenge for me to try and dismiss or to argue against such perceptions of the novel. So uh, that was of some interest. Uh, as for the specific place within the canon, I wouldn't say that I don't know, uh, nothing like The Sun, Napoleon's symp uh, symphony are not more experimental. Earthy powers is much more spacious and comprehensive, and the same goes for any old iron, for example. So this, uh, hardly more than a novelette in terms of length, 
doesn't compare favorably with those uh, peaks of, of Burgess's achievement. But it is, and I would like to quote uh, Jeffrey Agel, one of the early critics, uh, uh, scholarly critics uh, of, of Burgess. He said that it's uh, fine rage and unwearing wit uh, makes the book uh, into what he describes as a superb little satire. I would also like to add that, uh, uh, and I quote myself, if you don't mind, uh, uh, a bit from the introduction, the novel offers a series of aesthetically rendered philosophical reflections on the surface texture and the deeper structure of the human condition as seen and felt in a specific place at a particular time. So that, I think, sums it all up. You've talked a little bit about the, the, the challenges of, of editing the novel. Um, can you be more, more sort of specific about what those challenges were? Once again, the, uh, if you like, political, ideological or emotional challenge uh, derived from the fact that the novel would probably be uh, banned from American public libraries today. I don't know if that indeed is the fact. Perhaps it was overlooked. It's not as famous as Huckleberry Finn. But the N-word, to give you an example, uh, does occur in it. Now, it took some uh, effort on my part to explain how uh, the attitude underlying uh, uh, such verbal and non-verbal gestures on the part of the protagonist uh, are not to be attributed to, uh, to the implied author or the actual uh, author. Um, Burgess himself uh, went out of, 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 of his way to suggest how Enderby differs in many ways uh, from his uh, uh, real nature. Uh, Burgess was not a misogynist to begin with, even less a racist. He always emphasized the importance of diversity, uh, the central topic of, for example, his celebrated structuralist novel, MF, it's just about that. The narrator happens to be a person of color, uh, something we learn only at the very end of the story. So we are forced to identify with somebody who may not be of the same uh, ethnic background as we. I'm speaking for myself as a Central European white uh, male. Uh, so uh, once again, uh, he is famous for uh, having always being a champion of ethnic and racial equality and cultural diversity. So there you go. Enderby isn't. Uh, also misogyny. Uh, Burgess uh, didn't subscribe to radical feminism, that's uh, for certain, but he was a great uh, admirer of uh, the female principle, the yin-yang yin uh, kind of thing, you know. So differences abound, not to mention Enderby's disgusting eating habits. Uh, as for the formal challenges and difficulties, yes, indeed. I mean, the wealth of literary, historical, philosophical allusions uh, kept sending me to the library, whether electronic or conventional, all the time. And I had to rely on the inexhaustible erudition of Andrew Biswell with whom I kept a busy correspondence uh, uh, for the entire period. And then there was a physical challenge as well. 
the pandemic and the lockdown, which prevented me from hunting certain, uh, certain things down uh, in location. I couldn't travel, uh, just to give you an example. It would have been very useful to be here during the editing process, which I was prevented from doing. So there you go. These were some of the difficulties, but then there were plenty of rewards as well, some of which are intimately connected to the difficulties themselves. So I enjoyed all the hard work. There was plenty of hard work, let me tell you, but I enjoyed that tremendously. Well, re reading your edition, those sort of obstacles aren't apparent in the in the text, it reads as a very sort of learned and fluid piece of writing. Thank so, you very much. Moving moving away from the the Orwell edition, sort of in parallel to doing this, you are also uh, one of the Liana Burgess Fellows at the Burgess Foundation. Um, currently, in the it, towards the end of your your research trip here to Manchester, what can you tell us about the research you're undertaking in the archive? The bottom line is is absolutely positive. I've been enriched in my thinking, my knowledge uh, of, of Burgess's entire oeuvre um, and uh, uh, the context of his, of his uh, uh, working life. And there are certain specific uh, gains that should not go unmentioned. Uh, first and foremost, the actual milieu of the place uh, has been absolutely revealing and very helpful. It's been uh, a great bonus to be exposed to the kind of environment that Burgess's young man must have lived in, even though uh, Manchester has, has changed a lot. Most parts of it would be unrecognizable to Burgess. I saw this... Uh, video uh, showing him revisiting uh, the city in uh, advanced stage and how he was amazed by all the changes. And since then, even more changes must have occurred. That video you're referring to was in the late 80s, 87, yeah, yeah, I think. So, uh, um, so it was before the Manchester bomb, um, yeah. which was in 1996, yeah. so which completely changed Manchester. Nevertheless, some of the buildings uh, are still in place. The Dunlop uh, factory right across the street, just to give you an example, all the old red brick uh, edifices, uh, the industrial uh, and working class uh, uh, neighborhoods and so on and so forth. Uh, my stay here was not meant to be exclusively being exposed to the environment, but doing some actual research. And here I would like to mention yet another person, Anna Edwards, without whose, without whose expertise, kindness, helpful, helpfulness, I wouldn't have found half of what I, what I have in fact found. Anna, we should mention, is our archivist in the Yeah, the yeah, Spanish. yeah, indeed. Uh, she's a, a thought reader in many ways. So uh, sometimes she realized what I was in need of before I myself. Now, uh, some specifics uh, uh, which uh, should be mentioned here. Uh, as you may know, I'm interested in how uh, the findings of uh, and the insights provided uh, by what is called medical humanities body studies and so on, health humanities might provide for a better understanding of Burgess's uh, work. 
just to give you a few examples, uh, uh, I've had the privilege of, uh, of taking a look at the uh, film script of uh, the novel The Wanting Seed, which revealed how Burgess's thinking about a whole lot of things changed in the intervening years. Um, just to give you one or two specific examples, how how the comic element in this very dark prophecy of a, of a future which uh, is, is coming true. Cannibalism is not yet with us, but uh, overpopulation, um, feeding the population of the globe are real, very real challenges. So it's not easy to joke about such things, but he pulls that trick off more so in the sadly unrealized film script than he had done in the book, uh, which was written at about the same time as uh, Cockroach Orange. Uh, I've received further impetus uh, to continue my inquiries about the relevance of uh, medical humanities to Burgess's work, how his uh, treatment of William Shakespeare's life was inspired by his exposure to patients uh, treated at the army hospital where he, where he served during the Second World War, as it happens, uh, who suffered from the tertiary stage of, of syphilis, GPI, or the general paralysis of the insane, and how he saw that these uh, patients uh, uh, displayed what he called perverted talents. Uh, with Shakespeare, the talents were not perverted, and neither could they have been so with James Joyce, in whose works uh, the same illness, uh, syphilis, uh, keeps surfacing, beginning with uh, the first piece in his collection of short stories, The Dubliners. Uh, Burgess's uh, preoccupation uh, with syphilis in particular and any kind of mental disturbance in general being related to creative genius, which is a commonplace, but for him it was more than a commonplace. Intriguingly, uh, the bacillus causing this terrible disease may well have contributed to the evolution of the human species. According to uh, the, the noted late American biologist by the name of Lynn Margulis, the spirochete may well have lent its DNA to what later became the basis of human thinking, the human brain and the neurons, you know, the, the extensions of, of the neurons uh, having supposedly been related to the little tail, the flagellum of the, of the spirochete. So it's interesting how uh, the idea that uh, genius and, and, and madness, for example, madness uh, triggered by uh, syphilis, may indeed be biologically and scientifically related to each other. So uh, these are some of the things that I have come to uncover. What I haven't found is that I still don't know where exactly the idea of Shakespeare having contracted uh, this particular disease may have come from, other than his own insight. Uh, no uh, print sources that I'm aware of in his library or elsewhere indicate that other serious scholars had broached the, the idea before him. 
I mean, it's fasc a fascinating subject and one that we should mention that the, the um, Shakespeare theory about Shakespeare having syphilis appears in the novel Nothing Like the Sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, that, that, it doesn't appear in, in the Shakespeare in book. The biography. The, no, no, because he admits to have invented this. He believes it to, uh, to be a convincing theory, but a theory nevertheless. Very carefully, he avoided the topic in his uh, non-fiction Shakespeare monograph. Although, strangely, in the Shakespeare biography, he attributes a sort of vascular disease of the, the legs to, to Shakespeare that he himself suffered from. So, oh, yeah. No, no, um, uh, actually, I, I, at one point earlier on, I made much of his uh, uh, self-mythologizing tendencies, including self-identification uh, with, with, with some of the great uh, precursors. Uh, including, of course, uh, 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 Shakespeare, as well as Dream Choice. How, how does the research you're doing at the moment, the research into medical humanities that you've just explained, how does it continue the work um, that you, you began with the Orwell edition? Are there, are there links between the, the two? Uh, I don't see any direct uh, uh, links with the two because, okay, maybe one thing might be of some little interest, namely how the various uh, ailments uh, uh, given to Enderby uh, keep recurring in other works of uh, Burgess's, uh, including toothache, for one thing. But that's not the only one. Uh, heart troubles, I mean, not in the sentimental uh, sense of the word, but the clinical symptoms. Um, Enderby is killed by his as far as I remember, third heart attack at the end of the Clockwork Testament, to be resurrected for, uh, for yet another uh, Enderby book, uh, Enderby Stark Lady. And this uh, uh, puts me in mind of one interesting difference between uh, the manuscript and the first uh, uh, British uh, edition of the novel, namely how uh, a seeming uh, stylistic uh, misstep was corrected by, uh, uh, by the uh, British editors. One paragraph ends uh, with a broken sentence, a sentence fragment at that moment. And then the next one starts with the same phrase. And it was corrected. Uh, the first occurrence was deleted. Even though this repetition, to my mind, is there to suggest the malfunctioning of the heart. It is at that point that Enderby suffers uh, a heart attack. And this is an important little bit because it reminds one of the fact that for Burgess, language and literature are firmly rooted in the body, the workings of the body. So the connection between uh, linguistic devices, rhetorical devices. This is a rhetorical device and certainly not and not uh, 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 a mistake. Well, that's really interesting, because I, I think you're right, Burgess is uh, a sort of bodily writer, yeah. especially in the Enderby books, where it's all sort of gurgling bellies and, yeah. and breaking of wind and that sort of thing. Which some uh, of his early critics uh, found off-putting. Yeah, I, I think um, Burgess is always mentioning, even in his sort of diaries that we've got in the archive, and 
in his autobiography and in any of his sort of biographical writing, he sort of mentions his his current ailment. You know, his his yeah. leg hurts yeah. or his teeth hurt or you know he's he's yeah. having gastro problems or something like that. He always mentions that as a sort of marker of where he is in his life. But that is always a source of linguistic uh, innovation, ling verb play, you name it. Uh, uh, his leg ailment, for example. Uh, I wonder how familiar the word claudication might be to a native speaker of English, but to me it was of quite some interest to discover how his use of the word to claudicate and claudication. As far as I remember, it, it first crops up in, a, in an interview he made with Graham Greene. How this use of, uh, of uh, opaque, strange, multisyllabic words uh, might shed some light upon the connection between bodily ailments and language use. Not to mention the fact that Claudius, the emperor, uh, was known to have had a bad leg, as did Burgess. Another thing about the bad leg, you know, the, uh, um, the salt stick that he himself carried around. He even wrote a poem about it, and it, uh, uh, it, it features large in, uh, in the Quarkwork Testament as well. I don't want to go into it, because that would be a spoiler. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, he used his own failures, bodily ailments, as springboards of creative writing, suggestive creative writing and that. So I think he was a, uh, husbandry was, was, a, uh, was a great fault of, of, of Burgess. He knew how to put everything to good artistic use, even, even uh, the failures of the human condition and the failures of his own health. Much of, of your research, uh, away from medical humanities, is about dystopian and utopian fiction. Obviously, Burgess wrote A Clockwork Orange and The Wanting Seed. We mentioned both those books before, both classified as dystopia. But where, where would you place Burgess generally in this tradition? And what do you think his legacy is in this specific genre? One important thing of, of possible interest could be the fact that it's not only his core dystopian, or as he would have called them, cacotopian uh, novels, uh, A Clockwork Orange most famously, but of course uh, The Wanting Seed and 1985, which have also been mentioned, I think, uh, earlier. Um, uh, but also, of course, the end of the world news uh, uh, could be added to this uh, short list of uh, uh, of the obvious specimens of the genre. But I would like to say that many of his other novels contain quote-unquote dystopian elements, uh, um, earthly powers uh, being a case in point, or any old iron with its uh, uh, engagement with uh, uh, Soviet-style totalitarianism and so on and so forth. So he was for a number of reasons attracted to various scenarios involving how society at large can go wrong, very badly wrong. Um, so his legacy is even richer in that respect 
than we might assume by just looking at his obvious dystopian novels. That's one thing. Another thing is that he, I think he made a significant contribution to the theory of dystopian writing. Uh, just to return to the fact that he introduced cacotopia, which he explained, he argued that it was a much better term than either anti-utopia or dystopia. You can argue with that, but it's an interesting idea. So in, even in terms of terminology, he, he made a contribution to, uh, to the genre. And then again, I think it's also worthy of mention how prescient he was in many ways. Uh, a writer doesn't have to be a prophet. And yet, in many ways, I think he was. Some of his critics argue that his contribution to the genre cannot be compared to that of Orwell or Huxley. I'm not sure that this indeed is the case. If he had only written A Clockwork Orange as a representative of the dystopian genre, I think he would deserve uh, the highest possible praise. And then again, not to mention the fact that he wrote three more indisputably uh, dystopian novels and, uh, and some of his other novels displayed dystopian features, plus his theoretical writing, uh, as is well known to the Burgess aficionado. So, yeah, very important. I would say that uh, uh, his engagement uh, uh, with the dystopian genre is the one most important aspect of his work, but it is important. And I think it's important for the rest of our literary canon. Finally, we're, we're 30 years on this year from Burgess's death. Where do you think Burgess studies in general, the reputation of Burgess, where do you think it is at the moment? And, and could you predict where it's going to go in, mm -hmm. in the future? Mm -hmm. I think uh, his place in literary history has been given sufficient or almost sufficient attention, how his work is related to modernism, uh, what the postmodern elements in his work might be like. I dabbled into that sort of topic myself and others too, of course, uh, Alan Ruffley's essay collection could be uh, an example. Uh, so that may not be a very promising uh, area anymore, given the fact that we are not even certain that we do have uh, literary periods anymore, what comes after the postmodern. Hmm? Post postmodern, whatever. So, where do we go from here, you may ask? Uh, uh, well, uh, to my mind, well, <laughs> uh, this may sound a bit selfish or self promoting uh, medical humani humanities, which is an emerging uh, sub discipline, can, can offer new insight. And so can perhaps uh, post colonial uh, approaches, with which I'm not, again, very familiar, but I think it, it could be of, of much interest, especially uh, uh, with regard to his earlier work, and not only the Malayan trilogy, but uh, uh, David of a State and so, and so forth. One more thing which might be of interest and which has already been looked into, I think uh, Max Saunders investigated how 
such well-established modernist uh, uh, precursors as James Joyce or pre-modernist uh, poets like, uh, uh, like Hopkins uh, have been highlighted uh, in Burgess' uh, scholarship. But for example, Ford Maddox Ford's contribution to what Burgess may have continued could be of some further interest. So these might be some of the uh, paths we might walk down. Arkash, thank you for, for joining us on the, the Burgess Foundation podcast. It's been a really fascinating conversation and I can't wait to read some of the results of your research. Thank you very much for the opportunity and uh, I can't wait to see my own writings either. You've been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. The Orwell edition of the works of Anthony Burgess including the Clockwork Testament, edited by Arkosh Farkosh, is available now from Manchester University Press. To find out more about Anthony Burgess and how to support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>